Well, as you know, we are in a very, very intense section of the Lord's Sermon in Luke 6. But on your way to Luke 6, turn to James chapter 2 for a moment. James chapter 2, because what James does in the second chapter is he, he speaks a principle that will, will come to bear heavily when we go back to Luke 6 and continue our study of this great sermon that Jesus preached. In James chapter 2, you have a, an amazing and very confrontive principle, very, very important. Notice in James 2 that um, James is talking about the sin of holding something over someone mercilessly. And you remember he says, verse 8, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you'll love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, what is the sin of partiality? Uh, making distinctions between men, as if you have a right to make distinctions or, or somehow you, you deserve a better class of friends. But he says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In other words, if you're not a perfect person, if you're not flawless, every thought, word, and deed in your life for all your life, then you're guilty of violating God's holy law, and that's it. That's the end of it. If you violate one law of God, you will be eternally judged unless you have an advocate like Christ to forgive your sin. That's his point in verse 10. But then look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. In other words, you can't compartmentalize your life. But then here is the principle in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is James telling us here? What is he teaching us? He is raising the principle that if you make judgments on a human level of other human beings, whether they're class judgments or whether condescension or whether even retaliation, Justice. If you enact justice for mistreatment, as Jesus will soon illustrate in his sermon, then you have become a judge with an evil motive because you're going to be judged by that same law under which you will answer and have not been perfect. That's the whole point. Who of us has not failed? Who of us has been perfect? Perfect enough to sit on some throne over other human beings and enact some retaliatory judgment. Well, you remember that in this study of Jesus' sermon, Jesus has been speaking to the masses, and he has been upending their entire cultural norm and even the religious elite who have considered themselves superior and therefore judges of other human beings, not the least of which was Israel, who thought that by race they were better than the Gentile nations. And so they felt that retaliation for a wrong done against them was fair game. That was their right. It's because they felt a sense of entitlement in their life as human beings. And yet, here, James is saying, look, if you think you have a sense of entitlement, but you've not been a perfect human being, you're in real trouble. 
Because you're going to be judged by that same law. And merciless will be the judgment if you have been the kind of person who doesn't walk after Christ, who doesn't believe in Christ, but actually thinks himself his own captain of his own destiny and judges other human beings. That's the point James is making. Now look back at Luke 6, and let's resume our study of what Jesus is saying in this sermon. You remember, I, I told you weeks ago, that God had told Israel in Deuteronomy 32, 35, that vengeance was his. Vengeance is mine and retribution. And in due time, the enemies of God will slip. Their foot will slip. The day of their calamity is near, the law of God says. And the impending things are hastening upon them. doesn't matter how comfortable cultures get, how long history goes, all things will be made right by the judge of the universe who himself is perfect and pure in his justice. God's absolute moral high ground removes, listen, it removes any human being's personal right to rise up against someone with a heart of retaliation. God's moral high ground is based upon his perfect and pure and holy character. And so that removes every creature of his having a sense of personal freedom or even authority to rise up against someone else in retaliation. And so you know in Jesus preaching this sermon, he's calling true disciples to take no vengeance, but instead to show mercy. Now, God is a righteous judge. He will bring everything to light that has happened. But God is also, shockingly, unfathomably merciful to offenders. He's merciful to offenders. Jesus takes in this sermon every normal, natural, and, and I'll say it, sinful inclination of the human heart to be someone else's judge. And he just turns it on its head. He literally topples the relational sacred cows of society. Oh, you did me in, I'm going to do you in. That's a sacred cow of society. Uh, vengeance is a virtue in our culture, even in America. You did that to me, I'm going to do this to you tenfold. And Jesus just topples that, that ideology. And, and for the religious elite, like Israel, their well-known sacred cow was that they believed they had a right to judge others based upon just about any reason they could trump up, particularly race against Gentile nations. So we saw the true disciples' moral conviction. That was in verses 20 to 26 in this sermon. What was Jesus saying there? If you want to be truly fulfilled and happy, then you, you are someone who's under divine favor. You seek divine favor. You don't seek the favor of the world. You don't seek the, the uh, you know, fulfillment of this life. Um, any achievement you can have in this life are all graces from the Lord. And for believers who understand the gospel, they are to be used for his honor and his glory, not for human glory. Why? Because to be fulfilled and truly happy, this life cannot satisfy. What you want to know is that your soul is taken care of. Like the hymn writer said, there's nothing better than to know it is well with my soul because I'm going to enter the presence of God when I breathe my last and none of what I've done here on earth will matter if my soul is not taken care of. And so that was the first thing we saw in this sermon. The second principle we're working our way through, and that is the, 
the true disciple's merciful deeds. You have the true disciple of Christ's moral conviction that divine favor is all that matters, and you have the true disciple's merciful deeds. What does a real follower of Jesus act like, respond like to enemies and to mistreatment? And so you have these principles that he's bringing out in verses 27 to 38. And so the, the essence of the principle is this, just to boil it down. Human justice and personal revenge are the exact opposite of what it means to truly follow after God. You remember, there they are on the hillside, all the masses, and they're all saying, oh, we want to be disciples of Jesus. This guy heals. This guy has all this power. This guy could take care of our welfare. He could, he could settle our economics. He could take care of the oppression of Rome. This guy has it all. He's our, he's our political messiah, our military messiah. We follow him, and so Jesus knows that's what they're thinking. And so he is just laying down the line in the eternal sand and saying, look, if you're truly a disciple of mine, and let me tell you this, when you are mistreated, you're not going to have a heart of vengeance. If you nurture and cultivate a heart of vengeance, you cannot then claim to be a true disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. You remember verse 27, I say to you who hear or who have ears to hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Wow. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for the people who mistreat you. The first thing Jesus says in this principle, this wonderful principle of the merciful deeds of a true disciple, is that love reaches out in mercy. It doesn't recoil nor retaliate. It reaches out in mercy. A personal love for the soul of your enemy. A personal concern for their soul, even while they're mistreating you. Do good to those who hate you, literally, to practice good toward those who hold you in contempt. To practice good, to seek some good, to pray for the mercy of God on them, to pray that God would not ruin them, to pray that they'd come to Christ. It's like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're evil at heart. They're rejecters of you, but they don't understand what's coming. They don't know the implications. Bless those who curse you to seek favor upon them, we saw last time. And then love reaches out in prayer. Pray for those who mistreat you. Don't pray down your own human justice on them. Don't pray that bad things would happen to them. Pray that they would respond in their heart to the gospel somehow, some way, because their eternity is at stake. Now, as I also told you last time, I want to remind you, this is very, very important. Jesus is not saying that his true disciples, real Christians, will, will be perfect in this. We, in our first response, sometimes are full of bitterness. And we sometimes want to retaliate, and we sometimes do retaliate. Jesus is not saying that you're not a Christian because you have ever uh, somehow taken out your vengeance on someone. Sometimes our first reactions of the heart can be unmerciful, and we are prone to sin in this area. And sometimes there's a long-standing bitterness and a personal animosity that the Spirit of God over time has to root out of the believer's heart. But what Jesus is teaching is that if you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you are nurturing 
on a regular basis a heart of vengeance toward others and you refuse to forgive, your claim to belong to Christ is a hollow one. It's hollow. You can have no assurance. I told you last time that it's also true that Jesus was not erasing the culpability of an enemy. Hey, if an enemy comes against you, his culpability before God is not erased. Society holds him responsible because God ordains governments to punish evildoers and to reward good citizens, Romans 13. Communities themselves ostracize people naturally who, who mistreat others for the sake of an advantage. We do that. We shun them automatically because we realize that preserved societies and good, wholesome communities where people can live and flourish, it, it involves care for one another in a community, love for people, adjusting to everybody's differences, mutual adjustment and kindness. And when people don't do that, society shuns them. That's a, that's a natural consequence. You can't absolve somebody of that. They may be your enemy and you need to forgive them, but you can't absolve them from the ostracization that comes sometimes when society sees that they're not really mature and they're not handling relationships well. You know, when we were raising our kids, that's exactly what would happen. Um, <clears throat> if one of our kids mistreated another one, we would isolate them. And we would, we would not just isolate them and say, get out of our life. We were saying, it is a privilege to have siblings. Now, I know we didn't believe that when we were living with our siblings. But it is a privilege, not a right. Family life is a privilege, not a right. It is not an entitlement. And so mutual, interdependent relationships are essential in a family. And they're healthy. And when you violate that, if you can't maturely respond to family relationships, you get isolated. And that's an important principle that teaches them, look, these things are a privilege. You need to learn to, to handle those wonderful privileges with great responsibility and care. Otherwise, you don't get the joy of it. You don't get the privilege of it. There were many times where one of our kids had to eat their dinner by themselves. And they can hear all the joy happening at the table. They can hear all the wonderful things happening at the table with their siblings, and they have to sit over there and eat the stuff with guilt. Food doesn't taste good with guilt. It tastes worse. And so, essentially, we're not saying that when you love your enemy, that there aren't consequences that God will bring against the enemies. What he's saying here, what Jesus is saying here is, Love reaches out in mercy. Notice also in verse 29 and following that love returns more for less. Love returns more for less. Verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same or the same amount. But, verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Now stop right there. And you read, you read those statements, and you're probably asking the question, how could I possibly respond like that with any sincerity? Well, listen, here's the key to what Jesus is teaching here. 
He is teaching that the heart of a true disciple of Christ is a heart not of personal entitlement, but of undeserved grace and privilege. Let me say it again. Jesus is teaching here that the heart of a true disciple of Christ is a heart not of personal entitlement or rights, but of undeserved grace and privilege. So here's how it works out practically. When we are given, quote, less than the best treatment by others, we are to respond in humility and a desire to serve. Why? Because we are followers of Christ and we are sharply aware, keenly aware, that we deserve absolutely nothing. And we live each day in the hands of a stunningly generous creator. That's what the gospel has done. It's opened our eyes to the grace and privilege of being redeemed and living for him with our eternity secure. Entitlement cannot then crowd the heart of a true believer. We used to say to our kids, what, what rights and expectations can you possibly have in light of God's, God's sovereignty? What, what rights and expectations do you have? Oh, sure, we have civil rights that our government protects, and that's fine. Those could even be taken away. And, and for many Christians across the globe, they don't have those. Those are gone. Those have never been a reality to some people. Born, live, and die without some governmentally protected right to joy and achievement and fulfillment and happiness and all the things we enjoy in our culture. But even though we enjoy those, those are merely ordained civil rights under the sovereign hand of God. They do not entitle us to judge other human beings as if we are entitled by our intrinsic existence. They do not entitle us. Entitlement should never crowd out the heart. I'll tell you this, beloved. I, I love this generation, this next generation. I love the energy of the young people. I love the heritage and the potential for gospel influence. I cherish the upcoming generations because God may save them and even use them to do greater things for the gospel than we have seen just yet. But I'll also tell you what's most dangerous about this upcoming generation of young people. They are being allowed to nurture and feed the belief that life is a personal right. They are nurturing, they're being allowed by our culture and even in the so-called churches in evangelicalism, they're being allowed to nurture and feed the belief that there's no such thing as earned rewards but only personal entitlements. They're nurturing and feeding the belief that having to take a personal responsibility for choices is not a moral issue. It's actually just an inconvenience. It's the unfortunate, in their minds, the unfortunate consequence of getting caught at some point by an unavoidable authority. That's what they're feeding. That's what they're nurturing. A sense of personal entitlement. This generation, or, or as they're called, the millennials, they're growing up believing that they are born with the personal freedom to experiment and to innovate way beyond their ability or maturity to care for the damage. And they don't seem to care much. They tend to be reckless, with little to no concern for long-term fallout. And it used to be in my generation, of course, we were the same way, but society itself pushed back against that and, and pushed us down. Now, this generation is being fed these things uh, by media and by culture and and there's seemingly no end to what there is available to them in their digital world, and there are very few consequences 
Very few. And even when they become a Christian and they come to understand the grace of God, in the church, they come in the church and they, they merely transfer their old worldly boasts to theological ones. And they start reading theology and then acting like they're going to teach the church and they've only been saved a year. And the church just allows it. Why? Yeah, they're popular. You know, they can. They don't stop to think whether they should. They just can. And so they do. This is a problem. Technology has been a great tool. It's also, however, inadvertently sort of fed and empowered this sense of entitlement. I wrote a recent blog post uh, on the church and said in there that many in the church today who are fairly new believers, they become sort of overnight reformers and all they needed really was a domain name and a Twitter feed and a few quotes from church history. No proven spiritual maturity required at all. This is bad for the gospel. It's bad for the church. It's bad for our precious young people. The Bible repeatedly warns against the presumption of entitlement. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, listen to it. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, as if it were intrinsic. If you've been given all these gifts and grace from God, why do you treat other people like you have a sense of entitlement to it? Make no mistake, beloved, where Christ-likeness is increasing, that kind of entitlement has to run and flee. So if you see that sense of entitlement nurtured in the heart, then you know you're, you're not as Christ-like as you ought to be. You're on dangerous ground. Jesus teaches that following him in faith will be manifested in the polar opposite. No sense of personal entitlement. So that when you're suffering injustice or when you're cheated by some swindler's imbalanced scales, or somehow you're enduring the unfair treatment of some sort, a true follower of Christ strives to th see things from God's perspective. So, so they strive to set aside personal rights and expectations. They don't measure the issue by human scales. They don't merely tolerate the slight while seething inside or, or firing off some epithets under their breath. Notice how Jesus lays out the argument. Very quickly, two scenarios. Verse 29, whoever, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. <laughs> okay, we got to stop right there. <laughs> this is just very, very strong language. Uh, this is strong. And, and let's be clear about this. Jesus clearly is not teaching that our, that our natural self-defense mechanism for personal safety is somehow a sin. He's not saying when someone goes to hit you in the face, don't duck. He's not saying that. You're going to duck. It's not a sin. That's a self-defense mechanism. That's built in to human preservation. There's no, there's no sin in that. That's never called a sin in Scripture. He's not saying that you can't actually, in that natural way, defend yourself. And we know that's not what he's teaching because the Lord ordains the punishment of evildoers and laws that protect life. He ordains that. And so if he were advocating some sort of passive tolerance of evil, then he'd be contradicting his own nature, because he never tolerates evil, and he'd be contradicting what he's ordained for the preservation of society. God is not, Jesus is not saying to society, hey, run amok, let, let evildoers run amok, and the rest of you just remain passive. 
What is the principle here that Jesus is teaching when he says these very strong things? Listen, here's what he's saying. When Jesus is teaching this, he's teaching that when you are insulted or wronged even by violence, you are to have a heart of forgiveness and service. Why? Because under God's grace, we have no personal entitlement to anything, even safety. You say, well, then what does it mean to turn the other cheek? Jesus is making the radical reversal of our natural and sinful desire to retaliate, and he's teaching that we should offer grace to our enemies even when it makes us vulnerable to further harm. That's what he's saying. You want to have gospel influence? Then when somebody wrongs you, do not sense any personal entitlement in it. Forgive them. Respond in mercy even when it makes you more vulnerable to being harmed again. See, why would Jesus want that of his disciples? Let me ask you this. If the world hates you and becomes your enemy because you're a Christian and wants to do you harm, and you decide you're not going to live like this, how is the world going to see the gospel on display? I'll tell you what I would do. If there were no principle like this, what, what would Christians do? I'll tell you, if they start coming against the church here, we're going to bar the doors, we're going to circle the wagons, we're going to be an us for no more shut the door club, we're not letting anybody in, not letting anybody out, and we're going to guarantee our personal safety, we're going to do a cultural fight to maintain it. And no one out there is going to see what Jesus Christ himself displayed. Mercy to enemies. No one out there is going to see it. That'll be our tendency. Because we're afraid, aren't we? I'm afraid. Aren't you afraid in your humanness of having your freedoms taken away and being bound up and tied up and taken to some stake somewhere or having a shimmering sword flash in the sunlight before your head comes off? Uh, in, in humanness, we fear those things. Sure. And so the natural reaction is to run from the gospel influence. And Jesus says, look, I have a gospel, I want it to go to my enemies because I'm gracious, but I'm going to do it through you. And if you're being treated harshly by those enemies and you circle the wagons, the gospel never gets to them. So I want you to live like this. When they smack you or insult you, this is just a term for uh, the ancient way they would insult people or, or smack them. It happened to Jesus, of course, it happened to Paul. Uh, these were not only formal insults, but certainly acts of violence if they were... Uh, allowed to, to run free, his point here is then serve that person even if it makes you more vulnerable to getting smacked again. Serve them. That's his point. And notice, whoever takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt from him either. It's very interesting. In Matthew's account, Jesus gave the principle in a legal context, it seems. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, uh, Give him your coat also, Matthew 5, verse 40. So Jesus gave the, the lawsuit context, but Luke basically ignores the legal context in his account and basically just teaches the general principle that Jesus taught. He taught the general principle that the disciple of Christ does not have a heart of entitlement and therefore does not have a heart of retribution, a heart of retaliation. That's what he's saying. You could have your coat taken from you by force, according to Matthew's account, or you could have your coat, uh, someone ask for it, and then take advantage of you. What he's saying is be willing 
to be vulnerable. Be willing to be open for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of having no heart of retaliation, for the sake of reaching out. Let governments punish evildoers. Uh, you can respond by, uh, you know, self-defense when someone comes at you, of course. But in your heart, here's the point. You cannot, out of a sense of entitlement, decide to be judge and jury and take your revenge because the gospel will never go out that way. So he elaborates on it, verse 30. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Well, he's just, he's just giving the very opposite of what we would do. Give to everyone who asks of you. Do you, do you always do that? Someone asks you of something and it's going to cost you, seriously going to cost you. I mean, you have the resource, whatever it is they're asking. Or it could cause you to sacrifice something that really has been a preference all your life and you've really enjoyed it and it's a privilege. Hey, after all, you've earned it. And then someone comes along and oh, they just ask for something that's really going to require a sacrifice. You know what happens. In your heart, you're just figuring out ways to look kind and willing, but keep for yourself what you have. And Jesus just takes that natural inclination and says, look, if somebody asks, find a way to give it. Find a way to meet their need. Find a way to supply. Find a way to serve. Find a way to sacrifice. What, what does it matter if it costs you something? The stuff of this life isn't fulfilling. And if they take advantage of you, your reward is great in heaven. You're not looking for the reward here, are you? You're not going to do what just natural people do. They lend to one another and they expect it back. And we do that naturally. This requires supernatural perspective and power. Notice that second one. Whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Hey, somebody steals from you? Of course they are liable to the courts. Of course they're liable for the damage having stolen from you. But in your heart, what is going on in here? That's the point. Are you going after all you can get? Are you wanting to make them pay? Remember in Corinth, the church in Corinth, Paul had to write them and, and rebuke them because they were taking each other to court as Christians into the public law court and suing one another. And Paul says, look, two things you have to remember. One, the law courts of the humans uh, that aren't in Christ, human justice cannot decide disputes between believers who live by a different ethic. We live by a divine ethic. We ought to get together under the leadership of the church and solve our disputes. If some court needs to be involved, it should only be for the logistics and maybe protection under the law for the things that you do have so that no further stealing is done and that person has to pay for what they did in society. But in here, you should not be thinking, I'm going to take my brother or sister to court. I'm going to take them for all I can get out of them because they've done me wrong. That's the first thing Paul says. Human courts can't decide spiritual problems between believers. Secondly, he says... Why not rather just be harmed? Just let it go. Just let it go. In here, he meant, if, there, if there's some legal liability that someone owes, let the courts decide the legal liability of it. In here, you have a dispute with a brother. You should solve that right in here with your brother. Why not rather be harmed? Just let it go. Just let it go. That's the point Jesus is making. Christians... When something is taken away, they do not have a heart that is demanding. 
Give to everyone who begs from you. That appears to be a general saying. And Matthew's gospel account sort of repeats it like that in Matthew 5, 42. Um, it, that seems to be a general saying that, that became a mantra for Christians. Give to people. And Jesus takes it even further. Someone begs from you, oh, you can see their destitution. Sure, you might meet their need out of the compassion of your heart that's general in every person. He's saying, go even further. Give them more than they ask. Do everything you can to meet their needs and do good for them and don't ask them for anything in return. Man, that is amazing. I like the way Lenski put it in his commentary. This is what he said. The disciple of Christ loses less by letting his things be taken wrongfully than he would with a selfish heart clamoring to have them returned. End quote. Think about that. Do you actually believe that? that you lose less by having material things taken from you than you would lose if you tried to clamor to have them returned. That's a great principle to remember. You don't want to lose on the spiritual end while gaining something on the natural end. That would be foolish. Notice then the, the, the statement here, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. By the way, this is not a reciprocal ethic. In other words, he's not saying treat others good so you can get some good in return. Hey, you scratch me, I scratch you. If I do good to you, then I expect something in return. No, no, no. He's he's actually teaching that we ought to respond with compassion and forgiveness because when we mistreat others, we'd like the same compassion and forgiveness. Boy, isn't that true? You get in a conflict with someone and uh, you want to describe the offense to each other. Now, you've offended them in return and they've offended you. And when you are given your opportunity to describe their offense, how do you describe it? Oh, when you want to repeat what they said, you put the ugliest face on, you get the meanest tone, and you're just you're, you're entering into the the total offense that they committed against you. You have become the dramatized version of what they did to you. And then when you're asked, so what did you say in return? Oh, you've become this angelic thing. <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, I just said, well, I mean, I don't think that's right. <laughs> really? You didn't raise your voice at all? You didn't have any bitterness? No, no, I just, I'm just trying to, you know, show them the truth. <laughs> and in marriage, you do that all the time, don't you? You know, you talk about their sin, it is a mural on the wall with vivid colors. And when they say, what did you do? Well, you can look through the little tiny hole here, you can see the small offense that I committed. It's it's in there. That's what we do. Jesus says, look, when you sin against people, if you want compassion and forgiveness, that is how you ought to respond to others. That's why he puts this here. A man once said to John Wesley, he was talking to John Wesley about a severe offense that had occurred against him. And he said, I can never forgive that person, never. And John Wesley said, then I hope you will never sin because we all need what we don't want to give. Well, that's so true. Notice how Jesus compares it 
with these three arguments. Verse 32, well, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. (laughs) Oh, I love people. I don't retaliate against people. Yeah, but when we list them on a piece of paper, they're all your dear friends. They're all the people that treat you the way that you enjoy being treated. Love for those kind of people is is so natural, you don't need the Spirit of God to do it. Even sinners do that. What does he mean? Even people outside of following Christ do that. He says it again. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Hey, look, without the Holy Spirit, people in the world can do good to other people. We see it. You see a tragedy like 9-11? What do we see on the news? Plastered in the headlines. Mankind coming to the aid of mankind. Oh, the compassion, the sacrifice... Of course, because we're made in the image of God. It's a reflection of the compassion that is built into the framework of society. But you do not need the Spirit of God to do it to someone hurting. Do you know where the supernatural power really shows up? When you do that same thing for an enemy, a sworn enemy. When my wife and I were younger, we... We did the same thing then that we do now. We host a lot of young people and college students and try to help them grow in life. And there was one young girl, sweet girl. She would um, babysit our kids, and we got to know her and she, while she was going to college. And uh, one, one evening after night classes, she was walking to the car, and she was assaulted and raped. And we had an occasion to um, spend some time with her afterwards. And I'll never forget just the the piercing display of grace that just shortly after being violently torn asunder in her life, she she told the offender, I forgive you, in the court case. And she told us that she forgave him, was hoping that Christ would save him. Uh, shortly after. For a young girl, that's, that's not natural. That is supernatural. That is what Jesus is describing here. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Look, sinners can do the, the thing of, hey, I'll, I'll meet your need. Um, and, and, you know, in return, get, we get what is coming, you know, and we would naturally expect that. That's actually good favor between those who lend. This is an Old Testament principle of lending. And it was for fair society uh, relationships. It was so people would be held accountable for fairness and it would make for good relationships in society. When you go to a bank, you borrow money, you pay it back, you agree in the contract to pay it back with a little bit of interest, everybody wins. But it takes no supernatural power to do it. It's normal, it's natural to us. What about giving to someone, lending to someone, meeting a need of someone, and expecting nothing, truly nothing? in return. We have a saying, don't we? And we get nervous about it when someone wants to give us something and we know that they are well known for having strings, what? Attached. When you give, if you have resources of any kind, material or even financial or whatever, and you give, do you attach strings to them and get a little offended if someone doesn't, you know, acknowledge that? 
That's what Jesus is dealing with. It's quite natural to walk by that person and, and hope that they, they do a little homage, right? That they kowtow to you, that they, that they honor what you have offered in some way, though you don't want any thank yous. I mean, I've heard it all, beloved. I've heard, you know, people say that over and over again. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't want any thank yous. <laughs> yeah, but when they actually get none, they pout. Jesus is saying, even sinners understand the reciprocal ethic. But Jesus wants to take that to a new level and say, when you give, I want you to give with no expectation, truly no expectation. Why? Because you are like God. Notice, you become sons of the Most High. Look at that. Sons of the Most High. What does he mean? True disciples of God, true disciples of Christ. Why? For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Love not only gives less, uh, gives more for less, but love represents God's gracious nature. Every day I get up, I breathe. That is a grace, it is not a right. And every day I get up, I have the empowerment and indwelling of the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit in my life. The Creator Himself, having reached out to an enemy, Jerry Rag, an enemy of the cross, He reached out to me and saved me. What business would I have expecting anything from anyone? Ever. If I have a privilege to be like God... To reach out to enemies? That's what it says. Even he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Oh, is he kind to ungrateful and evil men. Verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Oh, think of it. In the upper room, think of it. He dips the bread in the, the liquid and he hands it to Judas. Do you know what that, that gesture was? It was a gesture of honor to be the first who was given from the host the bread and dipped in the sop so that they would have the full flavor of what was prepared and in that gesture they would have the fullest honor in the room all eyes on them because you're the host having this marvelous formal dinner and at that point it was also the Passover meal and so in the significance of all that there's this high place of honor he didn't give it to Peter he didn't give it to John he didn't give it to James he didn't give it to any of the other guys he handed it to his betrayer he honored his betrayer. Wow. Judas was against him. It was as if Jesus was saying to his sworn enemy, one last opportunity, Judas. One last one. I'm going to go to the cross. By the sovereign ordination of God, I'm going to go. But I want to reach out to you in mercy. Wow. 
If you respond like that, you are like God. You become a true follower of Christ. Not by the act of it. You have to be saved by repenting of your sin and believing in Christ. What Jesus is saying is, don't claim to follow me if this is not in your heart because this is in the heart of Christ and this is in the heart of God. He is a savior and merciful to enemies. Don't imagine that you know God and follow Christ if you're only loving and only good to people who give it back to you. You want to show that you know Christ by faith alone and that your sins are covered? Then it has to manifest itself in this kind of heart. And on that mountainside, on that day, Jesus would have drawn such a clear polarizing line. All those people sitting on the hillside, oh, we follow this guy. Really? Do you really? All you want from me is free food and displays of power and your physical infirmities healed. But you don't want your soul healed. If you want your soul healed, then this is how it manifests itself. True disciples of Christ have merciful deeds because mercy triumphs over judgment. Can I just remind you of something and we're done? In the church of Jesus Christ, we ought to know better. Right? There are unbelievers in this room. I understand that. Some of you don't believe in Christ. You never have. You need to come to him by faith. It's his mercy that you're even here. You may, you're an enemy of God if you're not in Christ. All of us were before Christ. You're an enemy of God. You sit here as an enemy, and yet he brought you here to hear this message, to offer you the truth of forgiveness and the gospel of his grace. But beloved, those of us who are in Christ, we know better. There should never be a church split over personal vengeance. Ever. What a shame. No wonder the gospel isn't powerful sometimes in our culture because we hold on to such petty things and the Lord is saying, no, no, no. True disciples of Christ know they're entitled to nothing and that mercy always triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are just shattered in our pride by your love in coming to earth as a savior. And you demonstrated your own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, you died for us while we were sinners, while we were enemies. Such mercy, such kindness. Lord, help us to know we're entitled to nothing. Help us to live by it. As believers, we've been empowered to do so. And so these ethics really, though radical, They're not out of reach for your people. So help us to live that way. Thank you for reaching out in mercy through this text of Scripture to anyone in this room who doesn't know you. And I pray that they would repent of their sin and turn to you alone by faith because you have died for for the sins of anyone who will believe. You have paid for sin. You cover sin. You grant forgiveness to those who believe in you. But they must come with none of their own achievement. They must come fully acknowledging they are worthy of condemnation and reach out to you in faith and repentance. Lord, thank you for the grace in offering it to anyone here who is yet your enemy. 
May they become your friend today, servant of the living God, a son of the Most High. And for we ask it in your glorious and redeeming name. Amen.